This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. How do you found a VC firm really? Today we talk to Claudius Jablonka, former CDTM Centerlink and Center Assistant who co-founded 10x Founders. He has studied at WHU, TU Munich and Berkeley. His journey at CDTM didn't end with his studies. He decided to pursue a PhD at LMU as a Center Assistant or CA for short at CDTM. During this time, Claudius tried his hand at founding Order and Pay, a mobile payment and ordering platform for the hospitality industry. After this, he co-founded and led the Munich office of Plug and Play Ventures, one of the most active early stage investors in the world. In 2020, he and six other partners co-founded 10X Founders, now a 160 million euros early stage fund, which is backed by also CDTM alumni. What unites 10x founders and makes the fund so unique is the entrepreneurial experience and an immense network in the European startup ecosystem. Over the course of the episode, we speak to Claudius about his academic and professional background, the experience of founding 10x, Claudius's take on diversity in VC, and some tips on maintaining work-life balance. As a co-founder, Claudius has a valuable perspective on maintaining this balance that we're excited to share. As always, to finish out the episode, we are also thrilled to add Claudius' personal toolbox to our resources for the innovators of tomorrow. Claudius, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. To kick things off, we'll ask you a question that we like to ask our guests. What do you love the most about the city you're currently based in? Oh, wow. Yeah, I love Munich. <laughs> Definitely here by choice. So what do I love most about it? I would say the people and the nature. So first of all, the people. I really like Munich people, especially, I guess, the Munich people that I'm most familiar with, the CDTM people that drew me here from Fallendar, from WHU, where I was before. And definitely having, you know, this very international environment, this kind of diverse environment with many cultures, many study backgrounds that come together at the CDTM. That was definitely something that drew me to Munich. And then I kind of, you know, grew out of that little ecosystem that was, I guess, my first starting point here in Munich. And of course, also the TU Munich ecosystem, where I also met a lot of fascinating and cool people. So that's, I think, the people, definitely a big plus. And then the nature around it, you know, the lakes and mountains and everything is just beautiful, combined with good weather in the south of Germany. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Sure. And because also we are in the season of Oktoberfest right now, I think it's also worth mentioning. Definitely, definitely. That's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Maybe to dive deeper into your background, into your academic background. I mean, you studied business administration at various universities. You studied at LMU. You studied at Technical University of Munich. You studied at WHO. It was all of these stations were more than 10 years ago. And what we now see in Munich, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that technology and management program at TUM is one of the most attractive study programs in Munich, at least. And I wanted to ask you, just because you can compare the situation 10 years ago and now, what has changed in the business administration education then and now? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. Maybe let me start with a bit of a story. I started my study at WHU back in the day, because then it was like the best business university overall, I guess, in Germany by all kinds of rankings. And I had a good Abitur, so I said, hey, which is the hardest to get into. So I went to WHU without really knowing anything else about it and knowing, you know, what exactly I wanted at the time. And I met some amazing people there, really, really, you know, tough environment where you learn a lot, you have to study a lot. And it's very, very driven. I had some great teamwork there, really enjoyed that. And it was, I think, you know, case-based education, which at the time was pretty new. So that was a lot of fun. However, I felt like in terms of the values of the school, investment banking was just, you know, the number one occupation that people aspired to followed by consulting. 
then nothing for a long time and then industry and then if you're like in the bottom of the of the class you'd be left as an entrepreneur and it was not like something that people were very excited about at the time and the funny thing is that I left VHU in 2007 for joining CDTM and joining the TU Munich to have a more kind of interdisciplinary environment and be in a bigger city with more inspiring people and so on. And not just people who want to be investment bankers, no disrespect, but I felt it was a little bit one-sided. And the funny thing is my class then graduated in 2008, half of my year joined investment banks. And then about a few months later, it all went bust, big global financial crisis. And a lot of my friends lost their jobs at investment banks in New York and Frankfurt and London. And then what happened? They went to Berlin. They joined Rocket Internet and other kind of startup incubators and startups, learned there for a couple of years, did their own thing. And a lot of them from my class of 2008 back then, who were in investment banking before, ended up being entrepreneurs. And that's now like 14 years ago or so. But that was a turning point for the VHU, in fact that investment banking was not the hot shit anymore. But these people who went into startups actually ended up doing much, much better and ended up being quite successful really at that. And that created a lot more role models at WHU. And now I think WHU is also among others regarded as one of the top spots to go for an entrepreneurship education of all places. Yeah, it was quite different then. And same, I think, is for TU Munich, I think, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, a place you went to for studying technology. And now I think TU Munich is kind of by far the university of choice if you want to start a company and be trained to, you know, build a startup. And it's also the most vocal about being focused as the entrepreneurial university, whereas I guess others say that academia is still the thing. I really appreciated learning about the history of all those universities you mentioned that you left WHU for CDTM. Do you remember how you first heard about CDTM and what initially drew you to it? I looked at a couple of places in Germany that I liked and Munich was probably on the top of that list in, in general. Secondly, I filtered the courses of study by which one is English speaking and which one is interdisciplinary. And I think CDTM was the only one that came out in Munich. So I ended up, <laughs> I ended up at CDTM because it was... Yeah, really advanced in that way. That was, I felt it's something I liked at WHU that was in some way also international and kind of, but not international enough, I guess. And so I was looking for that in Munich and I found only really CDTM and it was the perfect match for what I was looking for. I'm just curious, why was it so important for you to have a program which is international and English-based? It's inspiring to work with people from all over the world, spend some time in high school in the US, really, really enjoyed that. Spent some time with Model United Nations when I was in school and in college. I always enjoyed that intercultural exchange and new perspectives from people from all over the world. And CDTM you know, draws a lot of people nowadays that really go to Munich just for that. And it seems like CDTM catched you for quite some time, just because your journey at CDTM didn't stop when the program itself stopped, because after finishing the program, you also started as a center assistant. And for our listeners, center assistants, people who are actually keeping our center life, organizing all the courses and are responsible for all the work we are doing at CDTM. And my question would be, why did you decide to, to do a PhD in the first place? And why did you decide to do it at the center? I think... I might not have done a PhD if it wasn't for the CDTM. And what was the reason I did it at the center was to a big extent gratitude, what I had been given and what I had been exposed to as a, as a young student, having this incredible opportunity of meeting so many pioneers and entrepreneurs at the time that gave me this, you know, much bigger, broader outlook on life and on career and on what I want to do later on. So I think I wanted to give back to this community that I felt I got so much from as a student. And I wanted to make sure that it grows and thrives and gets gets bigger and better. And I was not too keen on necessarily doing a PhD for the sake of doing a PhD. But as part of the program, if you want to be managing the CDTM, you kind of have to do a PhD. And then I found a one of the greatest professors that I could have as PhD father, which was Professor Picot, who happened to be one of the co-founders of CDTM as well. And he was prof at LMU and 
for business administration and very open to pursuing research in the field of startups. So I think it was a great fit that I could do something practical, supporting students, finding great great, uh, talented young students that would follow on at CDTM and that would learn a lot from it and, you know, build great things afterwards. I think it's amazing that you cite wanting to give back as part of the reason you became a CA. Was there anything that you took out of the experience of being a CA that you'd want to tell our listeners or just learnings you had in that time, things related to that? Yeah, I want to share this is for students as well as part of the management team of CDTM. I think it's all about what you are putting in, you're going to get out. So if you are into something, put in your very best, put in your everything into this community, this organization, which gives you energy and give your energy back to that and it will reinforce. I think that's really a key learning. There were certainly moments as a student and as a part of the CDTM management team while doing my PhD, where I was beyond my limits of how much I worked and how much I put in and sometimes, you know, questioning why am I, you know, organizing all these events and why am I doing all of this stuff, which is maybe some of it is not very, very advanced, very managerial, right? But in in the end, by paying forward to the community, in the end, a lot of people appreciate it. You set a lot of people on their path of success and, and helping them. And I think that in the end, you know, builds good relationships and does payback. If I look at your like career path on LinkedIn, for example, I see that all of your career stations were somehow connected to the entrepreneurship ecosystem. My question would be, did you know from the very beginning of your career that you want to stay in this ecosystem or did it happen somehow by chance? So I would say I definitely started pretty early that I was inspired by the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It did start at WHU, in fact, with a really cool professor there, Professor Witt, who did the Entrepreneurship 101 course at VHU and he was certainly a very, very committed civil servant and kind of made a lot of jokes on that basis, but got me excited about entrepreneurship and said, hey, if you guys can can do it yourself, you should do it. I'm too old for this, but you guys should, should be starting companies and should be doing all of that. And that did contribute to my search that led to the CDTM. But there was a, definitely a moment where I thought after having spent so much time at CDTM and in the startup ecosystem that I felt I had to learn how to build a company and how to grow a company without VC money and to learn kind of from a bootstrapped entrepreneur, how to build a company when you don't have, you know, VC money and you don't have kind of this elite environment, maybe at university, but you're on your own and you have to build it yourself. So that's why after my PhD, I did join Notebooks Billiger DE, which was bootstrapped by Anne von Wedemeyer. And it was already a sizable company with 500 people at the time, more run like a yeah, medium, medium-sized Mittelstand company in some way, but at the same time with a lot of energy and fast growing. So it was a step away from the early stage startup ecosystem in some way. But still, I would say very formative educational experience of seeing a business where you have between one, one, two, three percent margin of error and really margin of business where you have to make, make tough decisions and learn in a hard way, which is a little bit different than you know, if you're in the fluffy early stage startup cloud sometimes. And speaking of the entrepreneurial ecosystem, something that I find particularly interesting in your career is that you founded the Munich hub of plug and play, which is one of the most active seed VCs. Looking at the history of Munich, it wasn't always the sort of bright startup hub that it is today. And Yulia and I feel sure that plug and play contributed to the positive change. But I guess our question for you is, could you tell us a bit more about this experience of bringing plug and play to Munich? So after some time at Notebooks Billiger, I joined plug and play first in the Silicon Valley. And then the opportunity came up to co-found a Munich office. And I thought it was a great opportunity to connect it closer with the Silicon Valley and to give more entrepreneurs the opportunity to start their business, connect also with the vast network that plug and play has globally and where it makes sense also to then expand to the Silicon Valley and to bring one of the big brands from the US over to Germany, which at the time it was like not so, not so common to have US investors 
very active in Germany. So bringing that into Munich was certainly fun. And I think since then, there have been a lot more investments from US venture capital firms into the Munich startup ecosystem as well. So I think it gave it a bit more visibility. Also sure that bringing Black and Play to Munich was definitely a very important point in the history of Munich startup ecosystem. And maybe one more question to your career path. Before moving to the VC side, you also tried yourself as a founder of an ordering platform in hospitality industry. But finally, you decided to move to the money side, so to say. Why did you decide to do so? Yeah, it was a really, really good experience of founding Order and Pay back in the days. It was quite a ride with many, many ups and downs and going through the roller coaster, but definitely the passion of building a startup together with the team, bringing everybody together, raising funding, which was much, much harder at the time than it is today, was definitely a very, very exciting experience and it's something that I think you have to get into and you know being able to empathize uh, with the founders who are going through that daily struggle where you're always in between this is going to be a huge company and tomorrow it's going to fail yeah and definitely going through this experience was very very helpful and I felt like whenever I have a chance to be on the other side of the table there's some learnings I can take away and some things that I can maybe do do better in the future when supporting founders and selecting them and believing in them and, and their vision. And we'll now move a bit more explicitly into talking specifically about 10x. So the first question is, when did it first occur to you that you wanted to be a founding partner of a VC fund? Yeah, so I have to say I was quite excited about venture capital since I was a student at CDTM. It Somehow through CDTM, I got in touch with Roland Dennard from Scipio Partners and a couple of other VCs and angel investors that we had invited to CDTM as speakers and really learning from them and talking to them. I thought it was quite an exciting area because you can not only venture into one specific company where, yes, you're doing something extremely innovative and you're building something great. And this intensity, I think, can be replaced with nothing. But at the same time, you're going to be somewhat stuck in that for 10 years or so, especially if it's successful. And it's a very, very long journey with one topic and surrounding yourself with the same 10, 20 people also in the leadership team of that company for a very, very, very long time of your life. And I'm always like very drawn to connecting with a lot of people, supporting a lot of people. The prospect that there is such a career out there where you can be supporting many founders and talking about and learning about new innovations every day and learning about teams that are building something great every day. It was like unbelievable that there is a career where you actually get paid for that and where something which I would do for fun. And I actually did a couple of things for fun during my studies. For instance, there was this thing called founder.org, which is a project by Michael Baum, the founder of Splunk. And we worked together with him at, while I was at the CDTM and was organizing a uh, startup competition for for them and it was really really cool actually yeah so, so selecting the startups looking through 100 pitch decks and inviting the best ones to come and pitch and in the end fund those companies which most deserve it yeah i felt that was very rewarding so I did it kind of for free for a while and in the end, really enjoyed going back into that track of supporting founders through a VC fund properly. And speaking about the partner team of 10X, I think you're quite a big team, to, to be honest. And I, I'm even going to name all of your co-founders. They are Andreas Etten, André Henkler, Felix Haas, Jan Becker, Jan Reichelt and Robert Wutke. The question would be, how did you guys meet each other? Yes, actually... Pretty much all of us have met quite a while ago. So I'll start maybe not with myself, but with my co-founders. So the first kind of group that started forming itself was around Robert Wutke, Andreas Etten and Jan Becker, who yeah, now almost 20 years ago started online dating companies in Germany. And they co-founded a company called B2 and then a company called C-Date, which is for casual dating, and both of them became quite big. They had a couple of investors in their index ventures, for instance, and then about 15 years ago, I started investing into other startups. So they were kind of the nucleus, I would say, if you go back. Then Felix Haas started joining them about six or seven years ago, who had founded several companies. And the first one, Amiando, together 
with Armin Bauer, CDTM alumnus. That's how I met Felix around about 14 years ago when I got to Munich. And yeah, then he joined kind of the angel investor group about six, seven years ago. And finally, Jan Reichelt, I know through my PhD. So by interviewing 100 founders about their internationalization strategy, I got a chance to also travel to London, where I met a fellow WHU alumnus, Jan Reichelt. Back in the days, we didn't know each other before, but I kind of reached out through the network, interviewed him, and we stayed in touch since then, have visited each other. Actually, his first visit was for Oktoberfest to Munich. So got to know each other well and always said, hey, it would be really so much fun to found a company together. And it was not clear at the time that eventually it was going to be a VC fund, but we always had that plan if the timing matches up that we want to do something together. Yeah, and then eventually we had Andre Henkler, who some of us knew for a long time. We actually pitched him as an investor into the fund because we we knew he was a very, very active and successful angel, having invested in Palantir and many other companies with Peter Thiel. And we had pitched him as an LP and eventually he said like, well, guys, this is pretty awesome setup. I want to join as uh, yeah, some of the partners and is there a way we can work together? So actually he joined during our fundraise, which was pretty awesome and really is a great addition to the team as well. It sounds like also your story about how you met your co-founders was quite organic and you sort of met everyone spontaneously. Was there a moment when you all realized that you wanted to join forces and sort of institutionalize your activities or how did you decide to make the transition into a formal VC fund? Yeah, so so all of us have been in the startup ecosystem for one or two decades. I have been angel investing, have been in investing or building communities like CDTM, Start Global, Bits and Pretzels, Manage and More, and so on, and have been involved in these ecosystems from a very early time on. So all of us were like deeply in, in this network. So all of us were getting approached by startups for investments. And those of us who'd been doing it for a longer time were in, approached by other angel investors saying, hey, I want to join you in all of your investments, not just in some of them. And we said, if we you know, want to take it really to the next level, angel investing solo is fun, but it's probably more fun to do as a group and to team up and to have a team that you can spar with and discuss opportunities with and have a bigger, much bigger impact on the ecosystem. If we could pool our resources and bring everybody together, it would be much more powerful and we would be able to support a lot more founders across Munich and Europe than on our own. So that's when we decided there was time to do it properly and to really take it to the next level. I think you guys also saw like different stages at 10x. You started as a bunch of business angels, then you institutionalized at 10x. And we must confess that we at our Mostly Awesome podcast normally interview founders of startups and not so often founders of venture capital funds. That's why we have a very naive question to you. So how do you build a venture capital fund actually? Yeah, first of all, it's I think very much like a startup to build it. At some point, you have this uh, image of these, you know, old organizations that are, have always been there, like Sequoia and whatnot. But in the end, you can start with a team like a startup and it starts with a team. Yeah, you bring together the right people, you bring together the right set of skills and characters. That's very, I think, important to have yeah, interesting and strong opinions and strong perspectives and networks that you bring together. I think having a strong network is probably a prerequisite. Also having a good track record and having good references is also prerequisite. And then you come together as a team and um, you define your product. You define what sets us apart, what makes us special as an organization, as a fund. What is our value proposition to founders? What is our value proposition to investors? And you bring everybody together and then you pretty much build a pitch deck and start going out there and exposing yourself to the feedback of your customers, which initially are your limited partners, the investors into your fund. And yeah, we pretty much decided to go that route and test our pitch deck that we had developed with our close contacts that we knew from many years. And we said, okay, well, if we show it to them and they say, this is a very stupid idea, you should not do this, then we will stop. Yeah. And we showed it to the first cohort of 20 
test subjects from our network, like investors that we respect a lot. And that we said, oh, oh my God, if they say this is complete bullshit, we have to really rethink our plan. But they all loved it. And they said, okay, where, where can we sign? We want to join and we want to be part of this journey. And then we quickly set up the legal entity and everything with lawyers and stuff and made it possible to actually join. Yeah? Up to that point, we had no GmbH, but then the feedback was really overwhelming. So we were like, okay, all right, let's do this. All of the founding partners of 10X have had the experience of founding themselves. Do you think that's important for a fund? And if so, why do you think that's important for a fund? Hmm. Yeah, I think the experience of founding a company, the experience of really exposing yourself to that immense pressure of building the company, building the product, doing everything at the same time, you know, being scrappy, from the start and, you know, really getting from a vision to building a company. I think this experience is definitely very, very helpful and gets you to put things into perspective when you evaluate startups and when you evaluate progress and these things, because you know that nothing is ever going according to plan. And you know that it's 90%, 80%, 90% of the time you're just rubbing through the mud. And then the 10, 20% where you're successful, it's making up for it and it inspires you and gives you so much energy that you push on and you carry on and then you're back into the mud again. And this experience, I think is very important. So you can be humble and you can you know, relate to the founders who are going through that. And we always said, when we do a fund, we want to continue to be those guys that you as founder can talk to honestly when you know, things are not going as, as planned. And we want to be the one that you can speak to honestly, where you can tell your story, you can tell what's really going on, and then we can help you and be in your camp to find the best solution for the company and also communicate it to the other investors. We previously spoke also about plug and play and how you brought it to Munich. And I mean, you also contributed somehow to the situation where the German VC ecosystem is a very competitive one right now. And now 10X, a very young fund, steps into this competitive market. But still, what uh, I can observe at least is that 10X already has a very solid reputation. And my question would be for you, to, how did you manage to do it, to build reputation for your fund? And what is the USP of 10X? for the LPs, for the founders that you speak to? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's because we're not doing this from zero, but we've been in this ecosystem for 10, 20 years, and we've been doing investments, some of us for over 15 years, that we have a strong foundation in the ecosystem and that people trust us and believe us and share their investment opportunities with us and founders can do tons of reference checks with hundreds of founders. And I hope most of them will come out really, really well because we continue to work with founders and they like us and they send us more opportunities from their friends who are also smart and come to us when they found their second company. So this gives us, I think, a good reputation. And I think this is the reputation is the brand in the end. So I think that's, first of all, very, very important. And the second question you asked is, what is our USP? And I would say our USP is that with our investment, you are not only getting seven partners who've built companies before, who've you know gone through the trenches and have gone through this experience and can, of course, uh, share and contribute a lot from that and from their investments. But most of all, you get access to a network that otherwise is very hard to build. And it takes normally, yeah, a decade to build such a network. And when you're coming out of university and you're starting your first company, you don't have that usually. And in 10X Founders, as our investor base, we combined 200 entrepreneurs and angel investors that you can go to for advice that can support you, that depending on your niche and your industry, have made experiences there before, have gone through some of the mistakes that you can make before. And by getting 10x founders to invest in you, you also kind of indirectly get those 200 founders to be in your side and to support you with your product and you're going to market, getting your first customers. It's great to have you know 200 startup founders there that have an interest that you make it and give also back to the community. So you've mentioned a few times the relationship between founders and the fund itself. How do you think that a VC fund can best support startup founders? In, in general, it's a difficult question. So 
I would say a VC fund can best support founders by supporting them and being on their side in carrying out their vision. And first of all, by not standing in the way of that, by being annoying. <laughs> and I think it's important that when you invest into a team, you're fully convinced into the team and you're fully convinced into their vision and also their ability to change and to change course and pivot and find the right product market fit and, and the right product. So we're definitely investing only in those teams where we believe that they have this ability. And I think that we put a lot of trust in them as well to follow their own path. And we are there for them to spar with them, to give them strategic advice, feedback and open doors and all of that. But we're not telling them what to do. We expect them to know themselves best, what's best for their company. And so, yeah, I would say, first of all, supporting the founders and believing in them and opening a few doors is already the very important baseline to be a good investor. Interesting. And what we often hear about how VC works and what your story and the story of Tenex also show somehow is that connections and network are essential. And I'm just curious, how do you build connections in this world that last for long and not too transactional? Yes, I think, well, it's first of all important that you know, build your network based on liking people and being, you know, really helpful and supportive and nice to people for the sake of enjoying to work with people and not for the sake of building your network and making a connection and having your own benefit in mind. But you never know about the good things that will come out of your network and you should not think about it too much in advance. And by having genuine relationships with people for many years, ideally, that's how you build trust and always consider that it's a very, very long-term relationship and not a one-time thing where you're trying to get a quick advantage out of it. And then I think it's good because then people give willingly and gratefully into the network and into their community. And that's when, in the end, this kind of trade of supporting each other generates value for everybody. Earlier, Julia read off a list of co-founders of 10X. The listeners might realize that there are no names that sound female on that list. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about why? Sure. Well, first of all, I think our team got together kind of organically. We've met each other 10 years ago, have known each other. There's a strong basis of trust that grew over the years. And in that way, we came together at the right point in time, at the right moment. And based on these long-term relationships, then decided it was a good idea to start the fund together, considering like all the different experience that we bring to the table that can contribute to the fund. So first of all, I would say it grew very organically and, and based on a lot of trust over the years. And this just happened to be this group of people that came together. I would say, however, I think it would not be a smart idea to found a fund with only people who are like yourself. Um, but I think we are very different characters and bring together all sorts of different perspectives and very, very strong opinions on uh, one side or another and have very heated discussions sometimes uh, about um, investments and uh, whether or not we should, we should do something. And I think having this diversity of perspectives is certainly, certainly very important. And I think we have that. And on the dimension of having male founders versus female founders, I think we would love to have a female co-founder. And we're very open to expanding our group as we look to grow the fund. Are there any other strategies at 10x how you try to bring more diversity? You already said that you have very different profiles in the partner team, which also causes heated discussions and maybe also like strong opinions. Are there any other strategies how you try to reinforce it? Maybe different academic backgrounds? How do you create this very diverse community within 10x? Yeah, so I think it's very important also when we look at our team that we bring in the diversity in our hires. So we've already got some really cool hires in our team that I think complete our perspectives and our viewpoints on how we can evaluate startups. There is Anina in our investment team. There is Omar, who's from Egypt and who's got a background in robotics, who has been winning robotics competitions since the age of 12 and is really, really 
deep in that community and has then started into AI. So he's bringing in this technical perspective, which is quite important to complete our team. Then I brought in Paulina, who I worked with at Plug and Play before. She was our best partner manager there and we brought her in to manage our community and our kind of venture network where we bring together all of our investors, the portfolio CEOs and our angel networks. And then also we have Virginia, um, who's coming from a fantastic background in asset management and supporting our back office. And I think we've already got quite far, not quite where we want to be in that respect, but I think everybody's bringing so much to the table. And we've made, we've cut no corners and made no compromises, I think, on the quality and on the skills of our team and brought together the best wherever we find them. Thank you. I really appreciate your answer. I just wanted to ask on a more personal level, do you have any advice for women looking to get into VC? Well, first of all, I think it, all the doors are open for you. First of all, I think, you know, internships and starting also after your studies as an analyst is definitely, you know, possible and definitely believe in yourself and apply. And I think you can do it all. Really, I think all VCs are excited to bring in more diversity and to strengthen their teams to make sure that they look at all different perspectives. So no matter what your background is, you know, if you've been exposed in your studies to entrepreneurship and you've started building a network, I think it's a great, great time to get into VC. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I will bring it back to 10X now and just ask, what is the next big milestone for 10X? Yeah. So I think for us, the next big milestone is, first of all, building our tech infrastructure so that we can support our huge and growing network even better. So we have a bunch of things that we want to build since we've built tech companies in the past. All of us are very excited about building 10x founders more like a tech company than just like a, a financial service provider or something like that or a bank. And we want to make sure that yeah, if we are a bank, we are the N26. So we want to make sure that it's very digital experience and very, very fast and this concerns both the way we work ourselves, so tools that we want to build for our investment team, as well as tools to you know, strengthen our biggest USP, our network, and to make it more self-service and more scalable in the end. So I think that's one big thing. And then the second one is, of course, our fund two, which will be started next year. And we're looking forward to that as well, to further expanding our awesome investor base and getting even more awesome people on board to scale 10x founders across Europe. And Claudius, as we already said, we are very glad that you are today on our podcast, especially because we just want to grasp the opportunity and speak to you about the VC current state in Germany and in Europe and its outlook and how you managed to lead uh, such a dynamic and young um, VC fund, but also to spend time with your family. And I just want to start with the question, that maybe some of our listeners who are founding the companies themselves, maybe asking themselves, is that market situation in, in the VC market is, is quite tough at the moment. And what would you recommend to a startup, maybe at seed or series eight stages in the current market situation? Maybe you already have some advice that you have for your own portfolio companies. Yeah, so I think, first of all, I think we're still seeing a rather favorable investment environment for startups in Germany, especially in pre-seed and seed. And in Series A, I think it's getting a little bit more tense already. But in pre-seed and seed, I think we are still having good times for the startups. So I think we're still seeing startups raise amounts and valuations at the speed that they were in 2020, which was a great year for startups. So I think in pre-seed and seed, it's actually more riot and good time to found a company now still series a it's getting a little bit more tense because you're closer to the capital markets you're closer to series b market environment and therefore valuations are going down a little bit and vcs are more strict and not every company is probably getting the same amount of funding that it would have gotten 12 months ago but overall we recommend to our portfolio to just in case extend their runway to 24 months right now so some are raising extensions picking up a little bit more capital than Last year, where we would say 18 months is enough. Now we're saying 24 months, just to make sure that if there is a downturn, you have sufficient capital to make it through the worst part. And have you found that 10x has sort of responded uniquely to the 
current market situation and have you become more cautious in your investments or how else have you adjusted other than recommending an adjustment on that runway period? Yeah, so we've focused more on pre-seed and seed investments because we have more control over supporting the company just on our own, which is harder if, if you're looking at a Series A initial investment and how do you do the follow-on in, in a 20 million Series B with a 160 million euro fund, then you're very quickly reaching the end of your runway. But we can do this very well for pre-seed and seed investments on our own. So we're doing a little bit more of those, focusing a little bit more to the, to the core, which is Germany, Munich, and Europe. And at the same time, we're a little bit more valuation conscious so we look a little bit more about how is the valuation adjusted to market conditions and how long can a startup run in case things get a little bit worse. Do they have a plan B, which is something that, frankly speaking, investors did not look at last year very much. And the time spent with the startup was shorter. So now we have a bit more time to talk with the startup about you know contingency plan and what other plans they have. Things do not go quite as planned. But overall, we've been very active still. We've found fantastic investments. We've done about 10 investments since June right now. So we're seeing awesome founders and maybe even there's a bit more opportunities for funds that still believe in the tech ecosystem in Europe and want to support awesome seed stage founding teams. 10 investments since June is quite impressive. And despite these turbulent times right now, I think what we see in general is that German startup and VC ecosystem becomes pretty mature. And as you have very, very deep into this ecosystem and understand it quite well. What do you think are the drivers for this positive change? And what are still the major challenges that the German VC and startup ecosystem have to overcome? So I think the German startup ecosystem has matured a lot over the last couple of years, especially I think also the Munich ecosystem has done really, really well. One contributing factor to that might have been the CDTM where I think seven or eight unicorns and counting have come out so far and a lot more non-unicorn, very successful companies and founders have come out. Why is this important? Because it has created role models on the one hand and on the other hand, also more capital from successful founders is getting fueled back into the ecosystem and these investors supporting new generations of founders is a very important aspect because smart capital, people with experience in building startups are investing in new startups. And it's not only cash, but it's also the experience that's supporting the ecosystem and making less mistakes and aiming bolder, going bigger. That's definitely helpful. The other part is that in the last five years or so, international capital looking for places to deploy their cash have also looked to Europe and have looked to Germany. And so there has been such an influx of international capital in the growth stages like series A, B, C, D that has come over the European ecosystem, like a big wave. There is, of course, a little bit more caution in that space right now than there was last year. However, this maturity is there. The offices of the big US funds are there and they're there to stay. And I'm convinced that the European founders have a great decade ahead. And what are the challenges still? The challenges in the ecosystem in Europe, I, I think we've had a great change towards founding a company, be, becoming the new joining an investment bank or becoming a consultant. So a lot of the best graduates have started companies, which is, of course, important because talent is the most important ingredient in a pre-seed and seed startup. And I hope that this trend continues and that the best graduates will continue to found startups. And I think if this happens, there will be an abundance of capital waiting for them to support them on their journey. And that's, I think, one important thing that we keep these great exterior conditions, these role models, this additional smart capital and, and the overall ecosystem of talent inside the startup ecosystem. And to make sure that like, if a couple of companies do go bust in a downturn, that the people stay within the startup ecosystem and people who have made money keep investing in the startup ecosystem. So to give back to the next generation of founders. Great, thank you. And moving things back to the CDTM, I heard the story that CDTM has played such a great role in your life that you even met your current wife at the ACDTM-related party. 
which I think is a very sweet story. But just to get in a bit more to work-life balance, how do you sustain your current work-life balance? And are there any rules that you intentionally follow just to make sure that everything is balanced? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think it's very important to keep a great balance between work and also having a life because, you know, you can get very passionate if you're founding a startup or a VC fund and you can get you know, pretty much carried away with work and there's always something more to do and something more to achieve. So I think consciously taking the time for your family and consciously doing things with your friends and your wife and your kids is super important to do this in the long run because I think it's a, it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. So while there may be phases where you just have to be there for your company and have to build the team and get the funding and so on, I think it's super important that, you know, all the other times you do also reserve time for your family. And uh, I think through COVID, remote work and everything, it has helped that, you know, while building the fund, I was able to see my little daughter grow up, who happened to be born pretty much the same month that we started with the fund. And that was quite a intense period of time because it was her birth coincided with the first lockdown due to COVID and the founding of our fund. So it was very intense in many ways and has changed our lives in many beautiful ways. Yeah. And getting all of that together while still seeing her, I think it was partly possible because of working from home. And we have a bit of a hybrid policy there. People can work from home and, and we do have an office though, where I go most of the time now that we have one. And I think, yeah, balance, balancing this is quite and important. And speaking more about family and being a father, you have a small daughter. And I think we have like a personal, maybe a bit philosophical question on that. How do you think, is it possible to be a good investor and a good father at the same time? I hope so. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's possible and it must be possible. It is challenging though. So I think you're working full time in a very intense job. You cannot be there all the time for your children, which is unfortunate. And it's really, really tough. But I think you have to build a network of support with your family, your grandparents, and your kita to make sure that your your children are getting the love and attention that they deserve. And I think that's really of the utmost importance because they are little, small, lovable beings that need our attention and our support. And it's, I think, something not to be just, you know, put away, but that you have to be there for in person. And yeah, to finding the best balance there, it's a challenge. I don't have the patent recipe there, I'm afraid. But it's definitely, I think, a, a team effort. To As always. Child. Yeah. Yes. And hearing you talk about the team effort and the network and the love and care required to raise a child, it sounds like you could say that parenting is just another investment. So maybe similar rules apply. No, I would. <laughs> I would. That's definitely <laughs> on a different level. Yeah, because it's yes, <laughs> definitely. Uh, a little human, little human being and, and very, very cute. And I think everybody, you know, who's becoming new parents is realizing that it's much more beautiful and much more rewarding than you, anyone can tell you and anyone can yeah, communicate. But also at the same time, it's much more demanding and challenging. So it's definitely a lot of all-nighters in the beginning in the first couple of months with your child. And then you have to find a way with your team at home and your team at work. So you can make sure that you're also there for your child and see the important baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. And we touched on this briefly in terms of work-life balance. What would you recommend to people who are working in high-paced environments who also want to be able to dedicate enough time to their family and people they hold dear. Or another way of asking that question would be, how do you recommend to others that they maintain work-life balance? Yeah, it's a really, really tricky question. So from what I've seen among my friends, I would say really fin like if you aim to have a child and for both partners to start working full, full time, few months or weeks after the child is born, I think it's very, very tricky and very challenging and demanding, especially with the uncertainties that we've had around COVID. So I would say, you know, plan conservatively in terms of when to get back to work, 
and how much you're going to be able to work also simply because of the fact that you have no sleep. And while setting up 10x Founders, I was fortunate that at the beginning, the first two months or so, it was still like a conceptual phase. We're still building the pitch deck and the concept and these kind of things. So it was like a little bit time independent. And if you can manage your work at your own pace and have an agreement with your co-founders that you can do that at your own pace, and maybe you work a little bit at night, and but you're there during certain times of the day for your child and your partner to support I think this can this can certainly help. I would plan conservatively and plan for more more support and also plan for more time with your child because I think it's just so important and the time passes so quickly that you have to ask yourself like is it really worth one more meeting and not seeing my child and and then doing this continuously maybe canceling that meeting because it's not really that important and you'd rather be there for dinner and have at least some time with your family. I think it's a great advice, not only for people who have family and small children, but for people who generally want to be more conscious with, with their time and how they spend it and how much time they want to dedicate to their dearest ones. Thank you for that, Claudius. And to finish out our episode, we normally have small sections in the end where we ask you quick questions and you can also answer very quickly if you like. <laughs> And the first question is, what is the book that everyone should read? I'm currently reading 4,000 weeks. And yeah, I think it plays very much into the topics we talked about uh, today. I think being a VC, you have to say no a lot. Uh, you have to say no to investment opportunities. 99 times out of 100, you have to say no. And it's difficult to you know cut off a deal that there's something about it you like, but something you don't like. So you have to say no quickly and it's also important about finding a work-life balance and finding that balance between do you take another meeting do you answer another email or do you spend some time with your family while at the same time not getting worked up about having to spend all of your time with your child or having to travel to all these exotic places yeah i've i've added it now to my to read list so i'm excited to check that one out what's an app that you think everyone should download pretty much an app for your computer that everyone should download is Calendly because it saves you so much time for scheduling meetings and that's just fantastic. Great. And what is the podcast that everyone should listen to? The podcast I would wholeheartedly recommend is called Marktgeflüster and it's by Professor Holger Graf, old friend of mine. And he is doing this together with another podcasting legend in the finance space in Germany. I think they were number one in the Apple podcast charts recently, beating Precht and Lanz. And it's a podcast about investing. Great. Thank you. And what is a routine you follow? I bike to the office in the morning every day and back. really enjoy that ride. Uh, it gives me you know, some fresh air, some free time to get my head cleared up. And I feel like I am always better on those days where I went by bike than if I take the car or something else. Yeah, because this fresh air in the morning and in the evening just gets you into the right mindset. Thank you so much, Claudius. We really enjoyed it. Thank you for, for your answers and for your time today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun to be on the Mostly Awesome podcast. Thanks Great. so much for hosting it. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hoffsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.